Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Bobby Stuckey, an icon in the restaurant industry. In 1995, Bobby joined the staff at the Little Now Restaurant in Aspen, Colorado as a sommelier. During his five-year tenure, the Little Nell received numerous awards for wine and service. In 2000, Stuckey moved west to work with world-renowned chef Thomas Keller at the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Within his first year, Stuckey led the Claim Restaurants team to earn the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Wine Service Award, and San Francisco Magazine recognized him as Wine Director of the Year. With the vision of opening a neighborhood restaurant reminiscent of the Italian Frascas, Bobby and his partners opened their first restaurant, Frasca Food and Wine, in 2004 in Boulder, Colorado. Since then, Frasca has earned numerous awards, including the 2019 James Beard Foundation for Outstanding Service. Today, Bobby also owns Pizzeria Locale in Boulder, one of my favorites, as well as Tavernetta and Sunday Vinyl in Denver. In this episode, we talk about his journey from failing in school to passing the hardest test in the world to become a master sommelier. Bobby shares all about his philosophies of hospitality, developing culture in today's different world, what's next for the restaurant industry, and starting the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which is the biggest independent employer in the country, shortly after COVID hit, and how he's been advocating to save the restaurants and what you can do to help. Keep listening to learn more and hear so many great nuggets of info from Bobby. Bobby, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's really, truly an honor to have you on. Well, Elizabeth, thanks for having me and uh, really honored to be on. Wonderful. You are such a legend and an icon in the restaurant industry. And I feel fortunate here to be living in Boulder and being able to enjoy your incredible restaurants. I know you weren't always in Boulder and certainly you had a journey that that brought you here. So I'd love to begin at at the beginning and really, you know, what originally inspired you to get into the industry and ultimately that path to making your way to Boulder and opening Frasca? Hmm. Well, that's a long journey. <laughs> I don't know how much time we have, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, first of all, how did I get into the industry? I got into the industry because I was a very challenged kid academically. I, I have dyslexia and ADD and um, um, sometimes, especially of my age, Back in that generation, maybe I didn't fit in the right part of the bell curve for education. I was, it was in the early 80s. I was a punk rock like kid who had just gotten kicked out of Jesuit school. And um, where were you living at the time? I was living in uh, Phoenix or Scottsdale, Arizona. And I went to work for a lady. It's interesting because um, I had a weird path where I always thought women entrepreneurs were, were normal. Yeah. In the 80s, my, my my first restaurant I went to was a woman entrepreneur chef. I went to work there as a busboy. And then I went to another restaurant that was a very cutting edge restaurant in the early 80s called, Car- her name was Carol Steele, C. Steele. And she had this very cool marketplace, cafe, bistro with a very, for that time period, progressive wine program. And I was a busboy. Her executive chef was a lady named Chrissa Robertson. 
And uh, so I just thought it was all always like women. That was the deal. That's how I thought it was. And uh, I went to work for Carol and Krissa and I just found my people. I found that restaurants, I, I was able, even doing something like busing tables, I got a lot of positive feedback. I got a lot of positive energy. I liked the pace. It, it, it made me feel that I was succeeding at something. I really enjoyed it. So you get, you're starting to bus tables and then ultimately how did you go from that to really excelling at what you were doing and ultimately you know yeah, being well, at the I'm, top of your game yeah i'm still busing tables currently um so not Which a lot amazing. of things. Some things have changed but um you know i started busing tables and it was the natural progression of busboy to waiter waiter to head waiter waiter to assistant manager or whatever, whatever you're doing. And during that whole time period, I was in college in Flagstaff, Arizona. I was working at a restaurant called um, Bricks and they had a really progressive wine program. And I saw this envelope sitting on the bar one day for the wine buyer and it was opened and it was this brochure to go take the intro level of the quartermaster sommeliers. And if you think back in 1992 or 93, 30 years ago, I guess, there wasn't a really definitive path for us in the hospitality industry. Yes, there were hotel restaurant management schools, but it wasn't on the top of everybody's tongue. It was a blue collar industry, really, and it still is. And maybe that's why I love it so much is it's an industry that you can just work hard and great things will happen. I saw that brochure and I said, I want to try this. And I went, so... I couldn't go that year, so I had to wait a year. They only had it a couple times a year, and I studied with this um, other waiter. We studied all year. We went to it in fall of 94 to San Francisco. We flew to San Francisco, split a hotel room, took the three-day class, and I was hooked because it meant to me so much. It meant that there was a validation that this is a great industry, I'm going to work hard and see where this goes. And I'm really glad I saw that envelope that day. Wow. And I'm sure like succeeding in a class after you had difficulty as a yeah. kid testing, probably that was a probably big, really big moment for you. Oh yeah. That educational stuff popped itself up many more times in the whole journey to be a master sommelier. But I was just going to say, cause that's probably one of the hardest tests that you could possibly take. So Clearly, you were able to put your mind to it and, and do it. They do say it's the hardest exam in the world. I think uh, parts of it are hard. Part I think the thing that makes it the hardest is just the anxiety that you only get one shot a year to take it. And what are the how many questions do you get asked? It just depends. And they could be multiple different questions. You're, you're asked them orally. So you can't go on to the next question until you either give up or give the answer. That's the theory portion. Then there's another part of theory that's done on your feet. It's called the service exam. And then you have the blind tasting and, and all those are, you know, high stress and anything can go your way or not your way, but you just have to learn to manage that anxiety. Wow. So what tips do you have for managing your anxiety? Well, I think test anxiety in a test exam is just to be confident with your preparation. 
take your time for your preparation, go there prepared and just let the chips lie. It's not something that you're going to, you're not going to get lucky yet. Yeah. So don't try, take your time to be well prepared. And consistency, like I think when you're studying for an exam like that, don't try to pull it off in the last three months. Every day, five days a week, six days a week for years is the best way to get through an exam like that. Is like study a little bit each day. Even if you studied one hour a day for three years, that's a lot better than just trying to quit your job for six months and cram. It's not going to be as productive. So you're being very humble of the fact that you're a master sommelier because how many of there of them are there in the world or the country? Very few. Uh, I think there's like I, I I don't know the exact number. I don't keep track of that, but you know it's like a couple hundred in the world, maybe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. So over the years, you've had so many incredible accomplishments of outstanding wine restaurant and hospitality, best restaurant. I'd love to hear where you really learned how to run a restaurant in that hospitable way. Cause certainly there's so many restaurants that don't have that level of service. And I feel like a lot of that is probably who you are naturally, or is it something that's learned? Well, I don't think there's per se a hospitality gene because hospitality, especially if you live in the Western world, it's not what we are wired to do. We, I mean, look, we're the United States of America. We're the me, me, me country. <laughs> There's no me, me, me in hospitality. Yeah. Right? Because hospitality is how you think of someone else. It's what you're going to do to how you're going to make someone feel. And that's inevitably against how we live in the United States. We're not hospitality people. Canadians might be nice, but that doesn't mean they're <laughs> great at hospitality. That's a whole different philosophy. I think things that really helped me find my way, when I went to work at the Little Mill in the mid-90s, a hotel in Aspen, Colorado, to be the sommelier there, Eric Calderon, the GM, was an amazing hospitality professional and a great hotelier. And then Connie Thornburg was my direct boss. She's who hired me. She was the food and beverage director. She's now one of the great hoteliers in North America. She's just awesome. She's the executive director of Ojai Valley Inn right now. But she was not only great at walking myself and everyone through the philosophies of hospitality, but she lived it every day. She was always in the trenches. She was such a great leader. I still think of things... I. Her coaching style, everything was just so amazing. And then after that, I went to work at the French Laundry and Thomas Keller and Laura Cunningham really helped get the idea of distilling what your goals are. So Thomas Keller at that time, his goal was to be the number one restaurant in the world. The way he and Laura Cunningham distilled that to everyone to the dishwasher who is going to rake the pea gravel driveway to the, the line chef, to the sous chef, to the maitre d', to the captain, to the, to me, the sommelier, the way they distilled that. So everyone knew why we were there was amazing. And it's really hard to do. It's one thing to say it, yeah. get everyone on the same page. 
is really hard and they were great at doing that. So I steal a lot from them and I steal a lot from Connie and Eric. And there's been, I've been very lucky to have those two forces of nature in my, in my world. So I'm curious to hear when you just said that they, that she was really good at coaching, what was that coaching piece of it and how do you use that in your restaurants today? She had a very high stress job. Uh, at the time, she was a single mom. I can just imagine everything that she had going on. I mean, uh, at that time, the Little Nell was considered one of the top five hotels uh, in North America. Doing it in a ski area, which is really hard, right? Because it's not a big city talent pool. You're dealing with ski bums, yeah. technically. Her ability to be so even keel, no matter what the stress thing was, was amazing her openness to share information and allow you to feel really uh, confident to ask questions. I think that is really important. We're not going to walk into any job or career and know exactly how to do it. Doesn't matter where you went to college. No, it doesn't matter if you went to MIT or wherever you're going to go into a work environment. It doesn't matter if it's hospitality, food, design, whatever, and that house will have questions you're going to need to ask to succeed. And it's how you allow people to ask those questions, absorb information at their own rate. It's really powerful. That's, I think that's such an important part of like building the culture of a company of, you know, it's certainly something that resonates with me. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about building culture at your restaurants. Cause I know as you were saying at the beginning about you're still busing, like looking at your Instagram, you're, you're making pizza in the back, you're bringing out dishes. And I'm sure that that's like so valuable to everybody on your team, just as one little example. Well, I hope they like it. I do think culture building or is harder now than it's ever been for a myriad of reasons and no one, no no one's fault, but part of hospitality is not just what you do to the guests, is how you listen to your employees and all that. I do think it is more difficult now for a myriad of reasons. One, I think about uh, as young Bobby in my mid-20s as a young manager, my job was a lot easier than management has now. If you think about sociologically, a 25-year-old in 1995 or 26-year-old in 1995 if he was he or she was a, a new manager and you were in a hotel like I was, you might have people in the accounting department that are 65 years old back then. That means they were born in 1930, 1930. Or you might have people your own age and all the way up. Well, the interesting thing was I'm a generation X all the way up to the people born in the 30s. Sure, we might have listened to different music and whatever, but what we liked out of the workplace was all the same. Mm -hmm. How we expected to be managed was the same for a 25-year-old as a 65-year-old. Now it's all upside down. Every sociological generation is really diverse in how they want feedback, how they want mentorship, how they see leaders how they see their career path. It's so different now. And it's it's going to be different for a while. So it's a lot harder. And then it also makes that harder to get the culture really right. I think now each subset 
believes that their way is the only way and they believe what they're into at that moment, the whole world should shift to. And so that makes it hard for cultural things. So you have to think about that all the time. You want to be inspired by the different generations. You want to listen to the different generations, but you also have to build something for the whole bell curve, the whole bell curve. You know, I have a couple different businesses like a Scarpetta Lockwood and ours wine company. Pretty much all the employees are 40 and over, right? What their needs are, are wildly different than the needs of maybe one of the restaurants we run where the average age is under 30. They, they, so and they're, they're, they're so different. And uh, what's really a culture builder for someone over 40 might be completely different than one that's 28. So it's just more d- difficult now. I think the best way to build culture is to listen to all those generations. You can gleam inspiration from all of them, but you also have to set a culture that hits the whole bell curve, not just one little section. Because culture is something that has to be organic and has to be around for a long time. If you base it on just what a 25 to 20 to 30 year old wants right now, you're leaving leaving out so many other people. And it's you got to be able to build that. Yeah, that's such great advice. Any tips that have like worked for you guys as far as really finding that bell curve middle ground of what works um, I think a part of it is trying to gently walk through their needs with them and say, oh, this is a great need, but is that exactly the same? Because part of your job as leadership is to know what their needs are going to be 10 years from now if you're lucky enough to have them work with you. Yeah, and helping them and grow. Wanna, yeah. And you want to meet them. You want to meet, let's say, person's name's... Uh, Nicholas, you want to meet Nicholas where he is or where Nikki, where she is at 28, but you want to have the landing pad so when they're 38 and their life has changed, it's still a healthy culture for them to be in there, right? I think uh, a lot of people thinking building cultures, having ping pong tables and cool t-shirts and whatever, that's cute and all, but what's really going to be sustainable for a long time. Absolutely. So as you talk about things shifting now, and that brings me to what you've gone through over the last two years and the amount of just, I I can't even put myself in your shoes to understand how difficult the last two years have been. And as we started this conversation, um, it is the two-year anniversary, as you mentioned, of starting the Independent Restaurant Coalition. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the group, where we are today, and what needs to be done. The restaurant industry is an interesting industry. We, We woke up during COVID last two years ago this week like every industry, freaking out. But many other industries had way better infrastructure for advocacy. I mean, I think you take one, one side of the, uh, the, the bell curve, you look at the airline industry, maybe the well, most well-oiled machine on how to protect their industry. We were the exact opposite. Yes, there's the National Restaurant Association, 
but the National Restaurant Association really, it's hard for them to be great for franchises and chains and be great for an independent first-generation American Korean barbecue in Queens. It's, they're not going to work. Uh, our industry, I didn't know all of this when I've been in this industry my whole adult life, but I didn't know these nuances and the fragility of our industry and the power of what our industry does to the U.S. economic system. But when we woke up two years today, there was eight, it was interesting, it was the March 18th and, and coincidentally, there were 18 of us on a Zoom call. Oh. We didn't know what was happening, but we realized that our industry was very fragile and we needed to advocate. And then from that, Tom Clicchio was maybe the one chef operator that had done some work in DC. Obviously, Sam, who's been on your podcast, he knows his way around DC better than anybody. But most of us didn't even know, other than seeing School of Rock cartoons <laughs> as a kid, really understand how this worked. And we went to town. And then right after that, the PPP came out very quickly. And then as soon as we read the, B, the PPP bill texts and regulations, we knew our industry was really messed up because the PPP was so great. It was such a great in, infusion of cash for so many industries. It just missed the biggest industry. So we're the biggest independent employers of jobs in the country, 12 times the size of the airline industry. Wow. We work on very razor thin margins. Our product is very fragile. That PPP came out. And if you remember back in the dark ages, two years ago, that you had 12 weeks to use it. So if you're a law firm, an architectural firm, an ad agency, you got your PPP, you had your, your, uh, you had 12 weeks to figure out how to work remote, but all your, even if you were billing at 70%, or even 60%, you were in it, you were having a better 12 weeks than pre-COVID because how the PPP worked was paid all your labor expenses for 12 weeks. The restaurant industry was closed for those 12 weeks. So we couldn't use that. And we there wasn't enough nuances from the uh, SBA to tell you how to navigate it. Technically, if you used it, might have been better for most to just take the money and give it back. So it was a mess. That's and then, mess. so the first thing that we did with the IRC is we worked with Dean Phillips from Minnesota and Chip Roy, a bipartisan, uh, one Democrat, one Republican, uh, Chip Roy from Texas. And we helped with them and they worked on what was called the PPP Flex. It gave us some more breathing room. Crazy thing is that didn't get passed till the third week of May. And a lot of people had, had either given back their money or used it all. So it was really trying for a lot of people in the industry. And then at around May 10th, I think, I don't, I don't have the, it was two years ago, we started working with Earl Blumenauer to write a white paper and a white paper then becomes a bill. Then you try to make it a law for the restaurant revitalization fund. Look, I think we thought that we were gonna be doing this for six weeks and two years later, yeah, right. I was an hour and a half with Earl Blumenauer on Zoom yesterday, trying to get it 
as a standalone bill because we got cut out of the omnibus last week. So it's been a real journey. I never thought my life would do things like this. Um, it's been a little bit stressful, but for all the stress that it's been, it's, I've learned something that I never knew that I would. I mean, you got to look at the positive. Yeah. Never thought I would talk to 100, 100 congressmen and senators on Zoom in two years. So that was, you know, there's positives to it. But there's 177,000 restaurants still in the queue. I have two of them. Tavernette and Sunday Vinyl did not get an RRF. And we are fighting for those people that really are hanging on. I mean, the, the staggering number that came out last month is that how Omicron hit a lot of parts of the country a lot of parts of the country, restaurants got really destroyed in December and January. A, January, less people went out because of Omicron. And in December, a lot of them had to close during peak, peak weeks because they didn't have enough staff. So there's a lot of restaurants uh, that we, we're hearing from. That, and restaurants don't have the same form of finance access that have put on some very intense personal debt to keep their restaurants alive. So I hope we can find a way to get this refunded. So what are kind of the next steps and what can our community who's listening do today at this stage to really help? Well, uh, being in Boulder, we have Joe Nagoose, who's awesome. So you could just call and thank him. You don't have to ask him. Fair there. enough. <laughs> I mean, he's our, he's a supporter. And so is Michael Bennett, our sen- you know, both of our senatorial leaders, Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, thank them for just being there they're doing they do great now with saying that we do have some congressional people in the state that don't see the same way we do so ken buck lauren bobert some of the republican congress people have not signed on you can reach out to them even if you're not in their district and say hey what are you doing this is really really important this shouldn't be partisan Unfortunately, DC is in a very icky spot right now. People don't want to work together. And the problem is, and this this goes out to any of those who I just mentioned, this shouldn't be about your party politics. You weren't elected to be a Republican or a Democrat. You were re- elected to be a leader. And leadership means to work with other people and to get things passed that take care of a large amount of your constituents. And I can honestly say, there's not a congressman or a senator in any city or state in the United States that doesn't have restaurants in their district. We are the biggest employer. Uh, we're the, we're, think about biology, we're the cornerstone species in the whole ecosystem of the US economy. You take us out, then there's farmers that are having problems, then there's distributors that are having problems, there's linen truck drivers are having problems. So massive, massive. Yeah. So I was on a call with Joni Ernst from Iowa after I had talked to her farm bureau. And, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, that's not a huge restaurant community, Iowa, but it's a huge agricultural community. And her constituents there wanted the RRF passed, not because they were restaurant people, but because they were pork farmers that sell to restaurants and they know how bad it is. They were people in the agricultural community. Cheese, you know, Iowa has a very strong artisanal cheese community. They only sell cheese, really? 
to a couple of Whole Foods, but mostly restaurants. Right. So that's how it's everyone should have a have a care about this. Absolutely. Well, it's definitely something that hopefully change comes soon. And I can't imagine again what you have gone through over the last two years. So as you've gone through that over the last two years, what are some of the things that have helped you on a personal level to deal with the the immense stress I'm sure that you felt? And I think having those tips would be really helpful for our listeners. First, I, I can say something very sincerely. I'm going to pull something up real quick. My, uh, my wife is a trooper. Danette Stuckey, a.k.a. my staff calls her the D-bomb, <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, she's had to listen to this from the kitchen table for the entire two years. So she has seen it immensely, and I, I couldn't have done it without her. So I think that's it. I do have some morning routines. Like I go for a run at, at as many mornings as I can. Those things are really important, not just during a COVID pandemic, but through life. You want to be able to put out the same amount of wattage and energy and everything at 52 years of age as you did at 25 years of age. But science is against you to do that. So you got to take care of yourself. What you can do as a a younger person is just supernatural than what you could do now. So you need to outsmart it now and take really good care of yourself. I think that's really important. Also, realizing the bigger picture. As we said earlier about hospitality, hospitality is not about you. I think every day that I woke up and got on that those Zoom call, I mean, I someone asked me today how many hours of Zoom I was on for the IRC, and it must be, I don't know how many thousands wow. of hours. I mean, the first 12 weeks, it was sometimes eight hours a day of meetings, wow. five, six days a week. When it was really wild and it and it's still i bet you five to six, it's almost a work day a week you know five to eight hours now still two years later um working on that that's a lot and uh you've got to be thinking it's not about you it's about those hundred and seventy seven thousand restaurants and their and families there's, and their families yeah. and everything someone just came up to me in new york i was doing a cookbook dinner and it was a, a restaurateur from New Jersey, and they said, look, I was about to lose my house. I was going to lose my restaurant that I had for 20 years. The, I was six months behind in my landlord, and I got that email from the RRF saying my funds. I gave, took a screenshot of it. I ran down to my landlord. And he had two weeks left to come up with all this back rent, and it, was a, it sounded horrible. And he said, I was able to pay my landlord in full. I'm back to going and everything. Oh, that's amazing. Like, oh. That's, that's oh, how you do right. it. That's what keeps you going every day. Yeah. But I'll show you a hilarious photo. My wife will kill me that I'm showing this. <laughs> this is her during the lockdown. Um, what she sent to me when I went down to do a bunch of Zoom calls at Frosca. Oh, my God. <laughs> So for people who can't see, because it's not video, but it says bring more wine. <laughs> yeah, it's my adorable wife just holding oh, up this that. handwritten sign, bring more wine. <laughs> so maybe there was some wine involved too. Yeah, I, I bet. So we'd love to dive a little bit more on this podcast. We're all about all the things that make you feel your best. And morning routines are usually part of that, especially feeling your best as 
a business owner, as someone in a high stress job. So any other tips that you have for feeling your best and like setting your day up for success? Yeah, I try to read uh, the newspaper. I read it in print, actually, just like that routine. What paper do you read? Uh, I read three. I read uh, New York Times. So that covers kind of left of center. Wall Street Journal, right of center. And then uh, the local newspaper, Daily Camera, just so I know what's going on here. And I do that every morning by myself, early in the morning for a restaurant person uh, with my coffee. And I just want to not immediately log on to email or electronic. I want to just absorb that as is. And then I get on with my day after that. But I really want to kind of not first thing put the computer on, not the first thing check your phone. Just get into reading about what's going on in the world, and and and, and that's what I like to do. And then, do you go for a run, or you run yeah. before? Yeah, I go for a run after that. What about breakfast? Do you have breakfast? Yeah, I have coffee. I have some granola or muesli or whatever yogurt. Yeah, I'm not like a cook breakfast person. I'm not like cooking up eggs and bacon. That's not really my routine. It's funny. My wife likes that type of breakfast but we're on different sleep cycles. She sleeps in a little bit later than I do, so. Are you a morning person or a night person? I'm as much of a morning person as a restaurant person can be. Meaning I work night, I get off late, but I go right What's to bed. late? Later. Like what time do you get end up getting home? It depends on the restaurant, but you know, 11 o'clock, midnight. That's late. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I usually... Um, clock off the floor usually around the last depending on the restaurant but usually the last reservation gets seated or the last entree gets run so at frosca i I usually stay later we call it lmo last meet out maybe at tavernetta or sunday vinyl i'll leave once the last reservation is seated but you know down in denver they might seat a reservation at 10 o'clock and so i'll check in with everyone and, and drive back after that but I'm not a restaurant person that needs to stay up way late to unwind. I'm literally a hot shower and anchor steam beer away from sleep at any moment. <laughs> well, I'm sure that has served you well because that would be tough to be up for several more hours after. Yeah. But a lot of restaurant people are wired and they stay up later and I'm like... Even when you were in your 20s? Yeah, Always. Uh, but I also was a restaurant person that always wanted to wake up and go run in the next morning. So that helped me. Yeah, for sure. Any favorite books or podcasts or things that really help inspire you today? Yeah, well, I read a lot of historical books. So those sometimes can be inspiring. Sometimes they can be just really depressing. I mean, the the history of what we've done in mankind is not always the most uplifting. Yeah. But I do find them important reads. Uh, I'm currently reading a book by James Patrick Dotton, J.P. Dotton, a, a history professor from Stanford. It's called The uh, Forest of No Joy. It's a pretty dark read. It's very, very intense. It's about um, French colonization of the Congo and then building a railroad there. So I, I might not get very inspired by it, but it's really good historical reading. My dad read it before I did. I was like, dude, how did you get through it that quickly? I'll read it for a bit and I have to put it down. It's so intense. But 
the historian J.P. Dotton did a great job with that. And then podcasts. I usually like to listen to musical podcasts, like uh, Song Exploder or something like that, and uh, things like that. And listen to what Questlove might be talking about musically or things like that. Do you listen to anything when you run or do you just like the silence? Uh, I do not listen to music when I run, but I do listen to a lot of music. It's funny. I do listen to a lot of music, a very diverse music uh, fan, but I don't really listen to it when I run. And I don't know why that is. I just always enjoyed running without that, but I love music on every other aspect of my life. Well, I feel like especially here in Boulder, to be able to hear the nature is just, it's so, so nice. Good. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so special. So what's next for you? Well, I think uh, what would be next is, you know, when I first, uh, when Lachlan and I first opened Frosca 18 years ago, I never wanted to have another restaurant. I always fought that. But now I really realize that, that we do need to have growth, not for monetary reasons, but for growth for your employees. If you're going to keep great employees, you need to have things for them to go work in and grow in. So we're currently looking for maybe some some spots outside of Colorado for maybe Tavernetta or Sunday Vinyl. So that's one thing we're working on. Selfishly, not, another one in Boulder? Um, not at the moment. We haven't <laughs> seen anything that really fits in Boulder as of right now, but that could always change. Yeah. But we do, we definitely want to add a couple more restaurants for our team to grow in, for sure. And what do you see as next in the restaurant industry? I think what the industry needs to do is it needs to A, implement and B, educate. We need to implement things like for Frosca example, we've had insurance for 18 years. We've provided a matching 401k before that. It was matching uh, IRA since the beginning almost. That's normal for us, but it's not normal in our industry. And I was at an event in New York this last week, and I saw someone who's a great, long-term, great uh, sommelier in the industry, and he had this kind of bitter tone to him. And I hadn't caught up with him because of COVID for two years, and we're touching base. And it, 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 real, it dawned on me that there are certain restaurant or restaurant groups that provide these benefits, but it's not universal. But also it's not universal for staff to want those things, right? Like we were talking about the different generations. Like if you're under 30 right now, the most important thing for you is PTO and and work-life balance. But if you're 45 years old, the most important thing for you is, my God, I can't believe I don't have a retirement fund built up. Like hearing two people within the same industry that do the same jobs are just different times in their life. What was important to them was completely different. I think we need to get our industry's workforce to understand what really is important and then only go work at those restaurants that provide those things. And then you can have a real revolution where if employees were only in this, especially in this tight job market, they were only going to the restaurants or the hotels or the, organizations that provided a 401k and insurance and all that, it would change the whole industry really 
really, really quickly. And I think that would be great for our industry because I think our industry would love, the, the employees would love it more if when they were, first of all, there's nothing better than being at something a long time and enjoying it and being good at it. You want people to have that longevity, but you also want them to wake up in their 40s and say, oh my God, I'm doing the right thing. I've got this much in my simple IRA or my 401k account. I've got a house payment that I can make, all those things. Those things are important. Well, that's really exciting. Hopefully that's the direction that it goes. I hope so. Gosh, because I love our industry. I just want to make it more sustainable for so many more, for the 11 million people out there. Awesome. Well, we're going to move on to some rapid fire Q&A. Okay. All right. If you could have anybody dead or alive eat at Frasca who has not already, who would it be? Stephen Hawkins. If you could only drink one wine for the rest of your life, what would it be? That would be dependent on what Danette wanted, my wife. And what would she want? Depends on the time of the year. Might be Barolo, might be, might be Great Chablis. I think it would it'd be one of those two. If it was summertime, she'd say Great Chablis. We'll give her two. We'll give her two. <laughs> yeah, we'll give her Chablis and Barolo. Yeah. Okay. What is the best advice that you've gotten in the last six months? Keep trying. Yep. Yep. Exactly. That was the best advice. Three random things that you're currently loving could be a product, a TV show, anything. Um, there's a band, there's a band from Rome, but they have a Scandinavian name called Monaskin. Totally love. They're a really young act. Love what they're doing. I love what they're doing. Three other things, products, whatever. I love uh, when I get to race a marathon running in Nike Vaporflies. And the third thing I would have to say is I love what the clothing designer Dries Van Noten has been up to. Nice. What's your next marathon, by the way? I think I might do Berlin in wow. September. That's exciting. I'm seeing my brother in Kind of. My brother, I went with my brother to do it right after he had had cancer surgery in 2018. But I had had a stress fracture for like the eight weeks before that. So I just went to be on the starting line with him and I was injured. So I have to go back and redo it. Yeah, sounds like it. What do you want more of in your life? I want more people to be empathetic towards others. I love that. What do you want less of? Authoritarians invading countries. Fair enough. A meal that you'll never forget. Which this you know, I've been very be lucky. I have, a, <laughs> I have a lot of really monumental. I mean, that's something I've done my whole life is chase great meals but maybe a meal that i will never forget is uh, maybe not the fanciest meal but maybe the most special was 
last summer, hanging out in the backyard in Abruzzo, Italy. That's where my wife's family is from, is Abruzzo, Italy, with Christiana Tiberio and just drinking a bunch of, she's a winemaker and she's like soul sister with Danette and sitting back there late into the summer evening when it got dark and there's no lights back there. And we had just eaten just a great pasta course with some summer black truffles and drinking a bunch of wine. And I'll never forget that night. That sounds like heaven. Now I need to ask you, what's your favorite or most memorable, like fanciest best meal? Fanciest best meal, maybe experientially wise, the restaurant doesn't exist anymore, but Favikin up in uh, northern uh, Sweden, that was great. I also have been lucky enough to eat at Austria Francescana a couple times in Modena. Fantastic. I always love, I get to eat there often, I'm embarrassed, but I've to eat with the Cirque family in Friuli at La Sabida, I've had some memorable meals there. Yeah. Yeah, you're making me want to eat and travel. <laughs> you know, that's like kind of ever since I was a kid, I've always traveled to eat. So, yeah. What's next on your travel plans? Um, you know, I have to go to LA next week to see my brother, and we're going to eat. Uh, we're going to have a couple great meals scheduled. Danette and I and uh, my brother and uh, his kids, we're going to go eat. And, and a, a friend of ours, Courtney and Craig Lewis, we're going to eat at Bicyclette, which is uh same people of. Um, um, as Republic, we're going to eat there one night. We're going to eat at Petit Trois one night. We're going to eat at Mother Wolf. Uh, oh, Funky's I've heard that's place. amazing. Yeah, we, we haven't eaten there, and my brother hasn't either, so it'll be a great uh, treat for him. Well, in closing, our last question, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Getting a run-in often non-negotiable. I've been doing it since I was seven. Wow. I'm in my fifties. My dad's in his seventies. He still runs. So I think it's part of our family DNA. When was your first marathon? How old were you? I did it as a bus boy in 1986 or 85. As a, a kid in high school, like cross country runner in high school. And it was like three weeks after the cross country season. And I tried to go do a marathon. I accomplished it what i did not accomplish well was i tried to work that evening oh my god the bus boy <laughs> and i just was in over my head yeah oh. it didn't that shift i did not bring my a game <laughs> i can't imagine i've i've run a couple of marathons in my life and my first one i basically couldn't walk for the rest of the day so yeah it's intense well, Bobby, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was such Thanks an honor and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.